Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. It's our privilege to come back to our study this morning. I really enjoy our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been here for now almost three years studying this Gospel. And today we're in the 10th chapter, and we're going to read from verse number 5 down through verse number 15. So if you'd find that scripture and stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word, we'll read Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we just ask you, Lord, to open up your text to us today. Help us to learn something this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you that don't know, our purpose of meeting here this morning is not for a social gathering. In fact, I could say that this part of our service has nothing to do uh, as a social event at all. But the reason that we gather in church every Sunday morning is for instruction from God's Word. Now, fellowship is a wonderful benefit that we get from being God's people and being in church. But the primary purpose of our time now is to focus on God's Word and here to learn from this inspired message that God has given, to listen to this and and find out what God would have us to know in Scripture. And here in Berean Baptist Church, we, we take the Bible very seriously. We've not abandoned it We believe that it's timeless. We believe that God's Word speaks to us today. We believe that it has answers for life's questions, the most important questions that can ever be asked. One of my favorite Old Testament texts is in the oldest book of the Bible, and that's from the book of Job. And this is a question that Job asked. And those of you that are members of the church, you are familiar with this because I bring this up often. But Job asked the question, how should man be just with God? And if you were going to distill the Bible down to just very basic information, it would be the answer to that question. How should man be just with God? And that question covers thousands of years of redemptive history. Man cannot be just with God unless God's justice is satisfied. He can't be just with God unless the sins that separate him from God have been removed. 
And so great is that obstacle of sin that it has to be removed or God has no fellowship with us. And so the reason that we still preach from the Bible is because the Word of God gives us this information that all have sinned, all of us have come short of God's glory. And that word sin is a word that simply means to miss the mark. It's like shooting an arrow at a target and missing it all together. And that's what's happened with man. We've missed the mark. We've missed God's expectation for our lives. And so the Bible says that all of us are separated from God, but that God has provided the means by which we can be just. God sent his son, and God punished him, and he punished his own son for our sins. And it's because that Christ has satisfied the Father for his justice, for the penalty of sin, that we can be just with God. Now that brings us to the importance of the text that we have before us this morning. The book of Matthew is about the life of Jesus Christ. It's about his ministry. It's the revelation that he is the Son of God and that he is the great king of the universe and that he's come to this earth and that he has chosen men and women to believe in him. But believing that message is not automatic. We don't become Christians by osmosis. We don't become believers and become Christians because we were born into a Christian family. And we don't become Christians because we were born with some kind of a Christian gene. And we're not Christians because we attend church. And we're not Christians because we have grown up in what some would call a Christian nation. But we become Christians by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We become Christians by believing that he was God incarnate and that he died on the cross, that he did arise from the dead in order that we might be saved from our sins. And we become Christians because that message has struck us right in the very core of our being through the operation of God's Holy Spirit upon our hearts. But we also become Christians through human instrumentality. We become Christians because we have been enabled, enabled to believe that the, that message that's been brought to us by those who preach the gospel, by those who tell the message of Jesus Christ. And so God has enabled us to believe this incredible story about Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. This is what we find in Matthew chapter 10. Here is the calling of 12 men who are to do exactly what Isaiah 52 describes. They were to go to the mountains and to the valleys. They were to go to highways and to homes. And they were to publish these good tidings. They were to publish peace. They were to tell people that peace can be made with God, that we can be just with God. And the way that we are is through that message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus chose 12 men, and he began to train them for ministry. And these are men that would take over for him after he was crucified, uh, after he ascended back to his throne in heaven. These would be the men that would continue that gospel message. And in this chapter, we find the information of what they were supposed to do, what they could expect, and how they would be treated for preaching that message. And I might add also that we see that this is an evolving ministry. Just as we don't give PhDs to freshmen in college... 
Jesus could not send these men out on this first mission, uh, mission to do everything and to know everything. They didn't know everything. They didn't know everything yet. He, he told them what they would face, but they hadn't faced it yet. He told them what hardships there would be, but they hadn't experienced the hardships. He told them where they could go and where they couldn't go. And he says, here, you can't go everywhere. And so at first, their message is a limited message. And we notice in verse number 5, the restriction that's put upon their movements. He says here, don't go to the Gentiles. Does that mean that God doesn't care for Gentiles? Well, we know better than that. We can go deep into the Old Testament. And there we find that God intended at some point that he was going to draw all nations to him. And so, of course, that includes the Gentiles. And then Jesus said here in Matthew, in the 8th chapter, in verse number 11, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so all nations are included in the message of Christ. He also says here, don't go to the Samaritans. Does that mean that God doesn't care about Samaritans? Well, we know that he does. In John chapter 4, Jesus made it a special point to sit down on Jacob's well, and there he spoke to a Samaritan woman. Well, the Samaritans were a special case for the Jews. They, there was deep animosity between them. See, the Jews didn't like Gentiles, but at least they thought the Gentiles had an excuse. They were heathens. They'd always been heathens. But the, 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 the Samaritans were something else. They thought they have no excuse. They are, they are spiritually vile. They're socially vile. These are Jews that had intermarried with Gentiles. They were half-breed Jews, and they had rejected temple worship. And so these are prejudices that the disciples had to overcome. This is the training that they have to go through. All those natural prejudices that they'd grown up with, Gentiles, Samaritans, they wouldn't have anybody, anything to do with. Those prejudices have to be given up. And this is when they began to recognize what I said in the beginning, that there's none of us that has any claim on God. It's not because of who we are. It's not because we are Gentiles or Samaritans or or Jews. We are saved because of God's mercy. And we're saved because of God's good pleasure. It's not because of our race. It's not our ethnicity. It's not social standing. Or even because we are religiously privileged like the Jews were. So we find the 12 apostles on their first mission, and it's a training mission. And thus, the title of the message today, Jesus was making ministers. So this is to train them how to go about bringing people into the kingdom of God. This is their labor in God's field. This is their work. And they were to tell people about impending judgment, to warn them that God's harvest is about to be reaped. They must be gathered into God's barn or else they're going to be burned in God's fire. Now, as we look at this a little bit more closely over the next few weeks that we're going to deal with this passage of Scripture, going, uh, we're going to spend a couple, three weeks here in these first uh, five, verses 5 through 15. Then, of course, we go on to the rest of the chapter. All of that's the training mission. But as we look at this, I, I want to be a little bit more specific here about the work of ordained ministers. Now, I told you last week that... I'm going to spend some time preaching to preachers. Most of you aren't preachers this morning, but I want to try to help you understand a little bit about ministry and what preachers are called to do. That's what this part of the Scripture is about. So these are principles, but they are principles that can be applied 
to all of us as witnesses and ministers for Christ, but I want to be a little bit more specific in the next few weeks and talk to you about ministers themselves, ordained ministers, as this text does. And so the first part of this chapter doesn't talk to us about calling lay people to do the work of the church. This is the call of the twelve apostles. It's the call of ordained ministers. Jesus told them on the night of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, he said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Now, there is a sense in which God ordains all men and women that are saved Christians. He ordains all born-again Christians for his service, and he expects all of us to be ministers for him in our appointed places. But there is a more special sense in which God calls men into the ministry of preaching and of pastoring and of instructing and shepherding the flock, of leading God's church. And this passage is instructions for that type of ministry. And some of it's limited at first. Jesus is going to expand upon it later. Even the apostles will do more teaching on the subject themselves. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago in our reading uh, in the book of Philemon, Paul uh, wrote letters, and and three of his letters particularly were pastoral epistles. They are letters that are written specifically for instruction of pastors. But the beginning of all that's right here, and I want to show you how that develops in this first missionary trip for the apostles. Now, it begins in verse number 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. So Jesus sent them out, he commanded them, and then in verse number 7, he told them what to say. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, these two verses, these are the two verses we want to consider this morning, verses 5 and verse, verse 5 and verse 7, and these two verses have the minister's commission. Now, it has to strike us here at the very first part of this that there are 13 men here, including the Lord Jesus Christ, and one of those men is the supreme commander. There's one of them that's in charge. And we don't have any problem recognizing that the one that's speaking, the one who gives the orders, is the one in charge. He is the Christ. He's the Lord Jesus. He has the authority. But he's also one that was willingly submissive to the authority of his Father. In another place, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So that tells us that God is the one who gives the authority for the message. The authority comes from God. Now, if you'll turn back just a few pages to chapter 8, you'll remember the issue of authority. Those of you who've been with us in our study, uh, there was a certain man here that understood authority in a very uncommon sense, and it was just a, a marvelous example of understanding authority. This is in the 8th chapter, and this is when the Roman centurion asked Jesus for his help. His servant was at home sick, and when he asked Jesus for help, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And we look at this statement in verse number 8. Matthew 8, verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. 
Now, the centurion understood authority. He understood authority in his realm. He had received his authority from a higher authority. He'd received his authority from the Roman government. That's what gave him the right to command his soldiers, tell them what to do. But he also recognized that there was a much greater authority than he had received from Rome. He realized there was authority in the supernatural realm, in a realm that he had nothing that he could do there, no power in that realm. But he knew someone who had power in this spiritual realm, and that was Jesus Christ. He had the power to heal his servant, and he could do it by only speaking the word. That was authority, an authority higher than any governmental authority, higher than any natural authority. That's the authority of God. And if we were to liken that to, to a governmental authority, it's not the authority of a kingdom of the earth, but it's authority of the greatest kingdom of all and the greatest king of all. This is God's kingdom, and he rules heaven and earth. Now, if you want to look at uh, the issue of authority, again, we can go back a little bit further to the end of the seventh chapter. And this is after the amazing sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And the people recognized the difference in the way that Jesus taught and the way that their leaders taught. And in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so going back to the 10th chapter into our text, the 12 apostles, Jesus commissioned them with authority. He's the one that calls. He, he is the one that commands, and they don't question this. I mean, these men are not volunteers. These are men that have been conscripted into God's service. Jesus said, have not I chosen you, and have not I ordained you? So what we have here is a compulsory calling. Now, we thank the Lord for this, that those whom God calls come willingly. When God calls for salvation, those who hear God's call of salvation don't come kicking and screaming. That's because God changes the heart and he changes the will or else we would come kicking and screaming. And the same thing is true in ministry. And so whenever you find a minister that speaks constantly about his resistance to the call, when he talks about dreading to get into the pulpit, when he doesn't want to stand before the crowd, when he hates the study of God's word, he doesn't want to put in the preparation time, then you found someone who's not really been called by God. You found someone who's confused, and you found someone who's self-called, but that's a person that's not sovereignly called. A few months ago, I was listening to a sermon by... Al Mohler, this was at the Shepherds Conference, and Al Mohler is the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. And he was speaking to 3,000 preachers that were sitting in the congregation. And as he was preaching his sermon, he's telling these preachers, he says, you know this, you know this. He says, you want to be the ones that's standing up here behind this sacred desk. And he says, if you would rather be out in the vestibule doing something else rather than being up here and preaching God's word, then you are not called to preach. And there's another comment that he said that I thought was good. He said, some say that they're called to preach, but they aren't called to preach. And so they stand up to preach and they say, I'm called to preach. And the church hears them and says, we've heard you. You aren't called to preach. And that's to tell us that those that God calls, he equips. He gives them the ability, the aptitude to preach, and he gives them that desire to preach, and they won't be happy doing anything else. 
couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, my wife and I are on vacation, and we were traveling throughout the New England states. And whenever I go on vacation, usually I'm scheduled to preach at least one service, one of the Sundays while I'm gone, but this time I, I wasn't asked to preach. And so for three Wednesday nights and four Sunday services, I didn't preach. And so I got to thinking, I kind of like this. When I get to rest, I, I can kind of take it easy. That was the first Sunday. And then it was downhill all the way from there until I got back here into the pulpit. You get anxious to do this because this is what we're called to do. Now, let me digress just a little because I said in, in the opening statements that I want to talk to you about preachers as ministers. But I digress right here to tell you that if you are in the church and you, and you feel no sense that you are a part of ministry, then something's wrong. Because all of God's people, in a sense, are ministers. You, you've been given gifts that God wants you to use in his service. And you don't have to wait for an assignment. You don't have to take a test to find out what your spiritual gifts are. You just get busy doing what God wants you to do. And the ministries of the church are very diverse, so that, so that many of them don't even have a name for that ministry. But you know how long it's been since somebody called me and said, is there somebody that I can visit? Is there one of the elderly people that needs some help? Is there something I could do for them? Is there something that needs to be done around the church? You see, the ones that God calls, he equips. And the problem is that there are too many Christians that want a job with a title. And they want jobs that bring some notoriety. And they want ego-stroking jobs. And sometimes they want jobs that have a salary. And even preachers are sometimes that way. And by the time we get through with this text, we find out how grueling that it is, how hard that it was, how utterly dependent they had to be on God. But they were called, and they were given the authority of Christ, and doing nothing else would do. Nothing less than what God called them to do would satisfy them. Now, we look a little bit closer here for just a moment at the word commanded in verse number 5. These 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded. Now, there is a power-packed word. And that's a word that means more than just he told them to do it. Now, it does mean that, but it has a much more meaning. The centurion that I spoke about earlier, he would have understood this. He understood the authority of command because it's a word that was used as a military word in the military sense. A commander is of higher rank, and he commands those that are of lower rank, lesser rank. And if you've ever been in the military, you understand that. Another story I like is that Al Mohler told was about a soldier in World War II that was serving under General George Patton. Patton was a tough, demanding commander. And one time, Patton was pushing his army ahead, and the army was moving so fast and overtaking a, a, the enemy so fast that they were running ahead of their supply lines and running ahead of their co communication lines. And Patton was in his Jeep, and he was barking out orders, and he was rushing along when he spotted a 17-year-old private up on a telephone pole stringing telephone wire. And all around him, there were German fighter planes that were shooting. There were mortars that were going off. There was all kinds of fire going on. And, and Patton looked at that young man up on the telephone pole, and he said, Son, I need more men like you in my army. You aren't afraid of anything. And that young man said, yes, I am, sir. And Patton said, well, what are you afraid of? And he said, you, sir. 
This is the authority of command. It has that connotation. It's a military command. But also, it's a word that has the, the force of law. It's like receiving a summons to court. You're under the court order. You have a legal obligation to obey it. And then it's a word that says not only must you do it, but it says there's only one way to do it. And you are to do it the way that you're told to do it. And so Jesus had the authority of command. And when God is your commander, and when God is your judge, when God is your instructor, when he is omniscient, when he is omnipotent, when he is omnipresent, When he's always there to see whether you're doing it or not, what choice do you have but to obey? You go his way, and you do it his way. And the best part of it is, if you've been called to do it, you want to do it. God puts that pounding heartbeat of ministry within your chest. You can't live without it. You'll be miserable unless you do it. That's God's call to ministry, and that's his authority. And let me tell you something else about it. You you can no sooner go without his authority than you can't go if he's given you the authority. It works both ways. You don't dare do this without his authority. And if you do, you might go out and build a ministry. On one hand, you might build a ministry, but you won't have God's approval on it. There are huge ministries that are, that are social clubs, and they're, they have their do-gooders, and they have their religious types in them. But we have to be reminded that Satan also is a religious type, isn't he? He is a religious type. And then on the other hand, you might not build a ministry. You might destroy a ministry. This is what the Apostle Paul says in one of those pastoral epistles. He's talking about the latter days, the last times. Really, he's actually speaking about the times in which we're living. So he gives Timothy a warning, and he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now, so they'll bring in these teachers and the people. It doesn't mean that the the preachers will have itching ears. It means the people have itching ears. That means they have ears that like to be tickled. These are ears that want to hear what they want to hear. And so they'll be turned from the truth to all kinds of strange doctrines which the apostle calls fables. And so there are many preachers that are not called by God and they've turned a lot of willing people to their fables. And so you have to watch out for that because if you go to a church where the pastor stands up and he reads a verse from the Bible, then he puts the Bible away. Or if he doesn't read from the Bible at all, then the church has heard from the preacher, but they haven't heard from God because we hear from God through his word. So this is first. God gives the authority of the message, and that authority has to be the cause both in the call, the way we do it, and the way that we communicate it. Now let's go just a little bit further this morning. We're not going to get further than this, and that is that God gives the singularity of the message. He gives the authority of the message, and he gives the singularity of the message. Now, we've looked at the command to preach. That's in verse number 5. And we also notice what he said in verse 7. Verse 7, And as ye go preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want you to listen carefully about the first mission trip and what they're told to preach. This is the first one. It's a very short mission trip. lasted only a few weeks. And I explained that what we find here in chapter 10 is not the Great Commission. 
The Great Commission has a much broader scope to it. So, in fact, if you'll turn to that familiar passage in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we can read there the Great Commission, and we'll take just a moment here to notice the scope of it. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, I want you to notice a couple of issues here. We see the difference here in where they're told to go. And we talked about it before. He says, go and teach all nations. And that's different from what we read in chapter 10, because they're, they're not concerned with all nations. He said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they're not concerned about all nations in chapter 10. Then you look at verse number 20 in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. Now there's a command that's given to the apostles after a lot more discipling. In chapter 10, they're on the first trip alone. They're getting their feet wet. And in chapter 20, Jesus is ready to ascend into heaven, and then they'll have their baptism of fire in the Holy Spirit. So then they're not going to get their feet wet. They're going to be thrown in with all their clothes on. And then they're going to do it all. They will systematically teach everything that Jesus taught them. In Acts chapter 2, after that baptism of fire, after the Holy Spirit came, it says this about those that were converted. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. But chapter 10 is not the time for that. They have one message at this time. And I don't want to beat this point to death. I'm not going here for an all-out assault of methodology, but they have one issue that's before them. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I realize there's a lot in that statement. It covers a lot of ground, but the point I want to make to you is that this is the time to make people aware of the jeopardy of their souls. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not the time for any other type of discussions. Now, hear me out on this, because have you ever gone to talk to somebody about Christ, and you hardly get started into that conversation? And then the people start arguing about some infinitesimal point of Scripture. I mean, have you ever gone to speak to somebody, and you you just got started into it, and they want to change the subject, and they want to know, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And you spend all your time trying to explain to them why they didn't have belly buttons. And when you go out on visitation, it's not the time to talk about whether man is a dichotomous being or trichotomous being. And you can ask me about that one later. It's not the time for you to argue about infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism or any other kind of ism. Then is the time to stick to the point to tell people that judgment is coming. That we are all accountable before God. We're all going to stand before God and we're going to give an account of everything that's done in this mortal body. And you can tell them that God is not interested in anything they ever thought that they did for him. God is only interested in what he can do for them. And then you have to tell them they must come to Christ in faith and and Christ will save them from their sins. Tell them they must repent of their sins. Tell them they must trust Christ to save them. Or you can look at it another way if you want. That the kingdom of heaven is the only subject that God is interested in. Man was created to glorify God. Uh, this, is, this is 
what the king wants. See, your life and your existence is all at the good pleasure of the king, and he's only interested in how you relate to him as the king of his kingdom. Everything else doesn't matter. See, there are three main issues concerning God's kingdom that cover everything that you need to know. Three things that you need to know about God's kingdom. Number one is how do you get in it? And that's salvation. That's important. How do you get into God's kingdom? That is salvation in Jesus Christ. Then how do you live in his kingdom? That's your sanctification. That's what God does after you're saved. He begins to sanctify you, set you apart for his service, for his ministry, as we're talking about now. Third issue is when is it coming? That's your glorification. And I promise you folks that those three items are as big as it gets. And those three items are so big that I'm going to spend every sermon that's left in me in one of those three categories, or in all three of them. The questions grouped together are as big as it gets. So what else do I have time for? What else do I have time for? I mean, Jesus didn't say, go out and find out what everybody thinks about the last law that Caesar passed. Go out there and find, figure out how you can get these particular guys elected to the Roman Senate so we can get some things done around here. Jesus is not interested in that. God doesn't care about that. You know, I talked a little bit about that on the July 4th weekend. You know, some people think that we are incapable of doing God's work unless the government agrees with us. Unless somehow we can get the government on our side, unless we can elect everybody that's a Christian, that God's work is not going to get done. When did God ever worry about that? When did God ever worry about what the government's doing? Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 2. He said, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Folks, that's what government does all the time. That's what the people of the world do all the time, is they're always against God. They're always taking counsel against God. Forget about getting the American people on God's side, or or the American government on God's side. Forget about that. God doesn't care whether they're on his side, because here's what he says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. It doesn't make any difference what the government does. God's work goes on. God has the power to overcome any type of government, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you take a look at what's happened, you know, over, over in, in communist Russia when that was under communism. Under communism, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ thrived like it never had before. Thousands, millions of people coming to Christ throughout the communist bloc during all of that time because God's not shut down because the government does this or does it that, does that. So if you want to talk politics with somebody, then talk to them about the politics of God's kingdom. And you know what the conclusion of that is? God is the executive branch, and God is the legislative branch, and God is the judicial branch. God rules all, God makes all the laws, And God punishes everybody who breaks his rules. Simple as that. You want to talk about government? Talk about God's government. So that's a start in what I wanted to give you here in Matthew 10, this part of the scripture. Twelve men are called in these first few verses, and they have all the authority that heaven possesses. And the king of heaven says, this is what you have to do. There aren't any other options. Nothing is as important as this, and don't let anything stand in your way. 
And we're, and we're going to see this as we go on. There's a lot of opposition to them. There's still the opposition. They had big enemies, and we have big enemies. But all of this time, in every age of the Lord's church, no matter how bad it gets, Satan has never triumphed over God's church. It has never happened, and it never will. Now, perhaps America is beyond repair. I don't know what God's timing is. I... You know, I love the country, our country as much as anybody. But this country and this soil and our government, that's not my primary concern. And as long as I make that my primary concern, I will be disappointed. And as long as you put your hope in anything that's here upon the earth, you will be disappointed. And so God gives instructions for the most important job that anybody can do. And if you know somebody that's doing this job then you be the best help to them that you can be. You encourage them, you defend them, you support them, you pray for the man who's doing this because he is doing work required by the highest authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word today. Lord, as we think about what you've called us to do, how important that it is. I mean, we're all concerned and worried about things that are going on around us. How can we stop this and stop that? The thing that we need to be concerned about is how do we get men and women to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lord, we know that you have, you're the one who works in the heart, that you're the one that takes the message. The most difficult cases you're able to solve, you're able to bring any person to belief in you. And Lord, we just give the message and we leave the work up to your Holy Spirit to do it. So we thank you for this, Lord. We pray for anyone here today who has not realized that you are the Savior, that the highest authority of all is God our King. And I just pray, Lord, they'll come and understand that they'll realize they must surrender their lives to you, repent of their sins, and place their faith in you. And that's the only way that they can be just, the only way to escape the awful message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and God is going to reap the harvest in judgment. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless your church today, bless your people, and help us, Lord, to give this message to others. And may we understand, as the apostles were taught to do this, that there's a lesson here for us as well, that the message of Christ needs to be told. And help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.